Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, a Shelf Isolation Special. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Have Shaped Us. My debut novel, Insatiable, is coming in spring 2021 and it's available for pre-order now. At the time of recording, we're all shelf isolating. I really hope we'll be back besides the bookshelf soon. But for now, we're talking to a range of writers through the magic of Zoom. We can't touch the books, but we can see them. And I promise that all of our guests put Sarah Vine to shame. This week, we're talking to the prolific Louise Doty. Her brand new book, Platform 7, is a chilling thriller about coercive control, starring the scariest villain of them all, the human psyche. We talked about the literary figures we'd like to be locked down with, Ursula Le Guin and being a book midwife. I wanted to know whether there were any, in these times, books or characters where you think, Oh, it'd be lovely to be locked down with them or alternatively being locked down with that person or in that setting would be the worst. Well, I wondered if I'm allowed one of my own characters. Is that okay? I was thinking about the male character in Whatever You Love, which is my sixth novel, David, because I started out creating him as somebody that the the female lead, Laura, was quite obsessed with and I kind of had the hots for him myself. And then the needs of the novel dictated that he actually has to start treating her really badly. (laughs) And I mourned. I actually thought, I really quite fancy this guy, but I've got to, you know, he needs to behave in a certain way. So I reckon if I was in lockdown with him, then maybe I could sort of convert him to good behaviour because he wouldn't be able to do anything else. So, yeah, if I can be locked down with David from Whatever You Love, maybe I could rewrite my own novel in social isolation. Are you writing novels at the moment? I am. I'm mid-novel, um, which is actually quite a nice place to be because I think I would find it very hard to start anything new under the current circumstances. And various novelist friends who've said they'd just come to the end of something before lockdown are going, now what? You know, let's just put it all on hold. I mean, it's definitely slowed me down. There's no doubt about that because I like to do a lot of practical research. I like to go and visit my novel. I like to get on aeroplanes and trains and buses and all those things we can't do at the moment. And I always do a lot of location research. I mean, I've flown to Indonesia before now to research a book. So for me to be stuck at home at a certain time, I'm having to kind of really think my way around it. What are the ways in which, you know, I just realized how much my imagination was fed by concrete reality. 
now the concrete reality isn't available to me anymore. What are going to be the other prompts that I'm going to use? And it, it, it will happen, you know, we're all finding a new way of working, but there, there's no doubt it's it slowed me down. And also in, in quite a helpful way, made me really analyze how I go about it and think, well, maybe this one's gonna be a bit different. It's, I think, really interesting and exciting to work differently and have a challenge to work differently when you have, you know, something that you're, not a routine exactly, but, you know, you know what works for you and what goes well. And that's sort of, it's, I suppose, you know, brains get to grow in a new way. But I was thinking as well how it does mean you have a chance to live with and spend time with characters and you've got all the novelty of different company that's not your own which is what we're all lacking at the moment but also you know they're not in your house using up all the hot water and you know filling the sink with dishes yes in fact uh, the friend of mine who's having the nicest time with her novel is a novelist friend called jill dawson who i don't know if you know who she's a fantastic novelist but she's working on a historical book and she says that's actually great for lockdown because you're just not worrying about the contemporary craziness that's going on right now. I mean, m- most of my books are contemporary, so I am worrying about it. And even though she's escaping into quite a dark historical world, she just says it's just a fantastic place to go to. So I'm slightly envious of that. I think historical novelists definitely have the edge on us contemporaries right now. So I know lots of people are reading the new Hilary Mantle. I'm like, oh. If you spend a lot of your free time in a world where there's no plumbing as we know it, you do feel an appreciation for the modern world, even in lockdown. Have you been reading much? Do you read at all while you're writing? Has this had any impact on your reading habits? Yes, I I think I have to say that for the first week or two, it did interfere with my reading. In that week that was the run up to lockdown and then a week or two after where we were all still going, okay, what is this? You know, and, and how scared should we be? And what's it going to be like having all the family around all the time? Um, and that was quite a worrying phase because obviously normally I read all the time and that's kind of my sort of life brother as a writer. But now things have settled down a bit more. Um, I have got back to reading and actually my, I mean, I always read a lot of non-fiction when I'm working on a book because I read round the subject. So with Platform 7, the most recent book, I was reading ghost stories. Um, I was reading really good and interesting books about coercive control, which is the main subject matter of the book. I mean, a wonderful book um, called Charming Man Syndrome by Sandra Hawley, who founded Refuge, the domestic abuse charity. So I always do that kind of reading. Um, But my my relaxation reading or my kind of getting away from the COVID situation reading is probably literary memoir, which is a genre that I absolutely love. That's um, where you get often a very accomplished novelist who has an interesting story about their own life. Uh, And at the moment I'm reading a book by Alice Jolly called Dead Babies in Seaside Towns, which is about her experience of stillbirth and surrogacy. And she's a wonderful novelist and she's applied all those skills to her own you know very complex and interesting story that is the most brilliant chilling title you have that kind of revulsion but also oh I want to read that absolutely and I mean I had a a real kind of you you see a phrase like dead babies you think oh my god no that that's awful and then you know it's actually about her own experience and she just writes with such a kind of interesting lack of sentimentality but also a terrific analysis of the process of memoir in itself. She's sort of 
she's standing back from what she's doing as she's doing it at the same time as it being really emotionally engaging. And, you know, books like that, I think are great for taking you away from your own irritation because nobody's replaced the loo roll in your house. You know, they're really those kind of stories. Um, I, I love them. That's my kind of treat reading, if you like. I've just finished uh, The Consequences of Love by Gavandra Hodge, which I think is either out now or just about to be. And I think it's her first book, but she has been a journalist for decades. And it's a story about how her sister died tragically and very suddenly when they were away on holiday. And she was a teenager, and I think her sister was about four years younger. But also her family was sort of very glamorous and chaotic, and her mother was a model and her father was a hairdresser slash heroin dealer. I would guess that you might, you know, enjoy it or find it appealing. There's a wonderful first novel just come out, um, which is from a former student of mine, which I can really recommend, called What's Left of Me is Yours by Stephanie Scott. Um, And she's a Singaporean writer who's written a book. She grew up in Southeast Asia and she's written a book set in Japan, which is about something called the marriage breakup industry, where uh, people can hire a private detective to seduce their spouse in order to give them grounds for divorce. And that's also based on a true story. It's based on the true story of a marriage breakup agent who fell in love with his his object, the wife he was supposed to be seducing, um, and then what happens afterwards. So I think those kinds of stories that are based in a kind of concrete reality, but also just novels set in other countries. <laughs> you know, that's what the other thing that I'm really loving at the moment. I mean, Polly Sampson's novel, Theatre for Dreamers, she's set on a Greek island, yeah, let's get all these scenes where people are sitting in tavernas. And I'm just going, oh, my God, I can't wait to do that again. You know, I think she's sort of an amazing writer and I know I'm going to love it. But also I'm thinking everyone in the world just wants to go on holiday right now. But this is the closest thing. Yeah. And because yeah. it's such in it's not contemporary, is it? Am I right in thinking it's sort of... No, it's- Leonard Cohen as a character and Marianne Faithful. So it's about their time on a Greek island called Hydra. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it did fill me with longing for Taverna days. <laughs> as soon as flights open up, that's it. I'm on the plane. Can you remember the first book you read where you really felt that very evocative sense of place and that yearning to go and be where the book was? Well, I suppose I was a huge fan of fantasy and science fiction as a child. And the thing about those writers is, boy, are they good at sense of place because they have to create it out of nothing. And I think a lot of those books were books that really taught me about the idea that the imagination is completely limitless because you can just make up absolutely anything. And in particular, Ursula Le Guin, um, the Wizard of Earthsea books. Um, I mean, The Left Hand of Darkness is also a really good one of hers. But The Wizard of Earthsea, the, the, the islands, the archipelago that those books are set on, are just so beautifully create, created in the sort of young wizard Sparrowhawk, you know, who has to go off on this kind of quest. Um, and also the sense of kind of doom and threat in those books. And the idea that the real threat is, is inside you, it's your own fear. Um, I mean, that, that was so impactful as a child. Um, and it's funny because I've never written fantasy or science fiction myself as an adult writer, but I still think that reading it as a child was incredibly important 
to to really just kind of just it was like a kind of boot camp for the imagination really reading those kind of books so at what point did they come into your life did someone recommend them to you or did you discover them on a shelf no I discovered them um in I grew up in a small town in the East Midlands and there was a local library which is a very kind of unprepossessing red brick building you know just single story with long windows and you know, back in those days, there was no, I'm always, I'm always telling my grown-up daughters, there was no Costa or Starbucks, you know, there was nowhere to go and hang out as a child and adolescent. It was home or school or rainy streets, that was it. And the library was one of the few places where you could just go if you didn't want to be at home or school and you didn't want to be in the local bus shelter in the rain. And so I would go and just browse the stacks and they just had a really good collection of fantasy and science fiction and I just worked my way through them all. Amazing. Can you remember what it was that sort of, was there a cover or something in particular that appealed or was it just that moment of like, well, I'm here and I need to do something? The wonderful thing about the old Gallant science fiction hardbacks is that is they were these beautiful bright yellow covers. So they were very easy to spot on the library shelf. And I would run my fingers along the shelf looking for one of the yellow hardbacks and I always knew I'd get a really good story. But the other thing I remember is the beautiful editions of the C.S. Lewis, Land of the Witch and the Wardrobe and all the other Narnia books. They had some lovely um, sort of line drawings. Uh, maybe they were watercolours, I'm not sure, but there were also line drawings at the beginning of each chapter. It's a very famous illustrator, I think now they're quite famous um, editions. And I remember absolutely loving those and wanting to collect each of the, the seven books in those editions. So... You were just really, you know, getting on with it. You were, this wasn't a point when people were kind of giving you books and saying, you must read this. You were finding your own things to read and setting your own agenda. No, not at all. I was very much finding my own things. I mean, my uh, my parents had left school in their mid-teens. My dad left school when he was 13. My mum left school when she was 15. You know, there were a few sort of books at the far end of the corridor, but I never saw either of my parents reading a book when I was growing up. Um, you know, they, they had to work too hard. Um, and um, so there wasn't, I didn't grow up in a culture of reading. Um, my brother and sister and I, we were all the first generation in either family to go to university. So it was very much a, something I had to discover for myself. 
We'll be back to Louise soon, but now it's time for a lockdown steal. I've chosen Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. This is coming soon to Netflix, directed by Lynn Shelton, who sadly died very suddenly this week. Still, I can't wait to watch the adaptation of this extraordinary story. It's about the wealthy Richardsons who live in the aspirational planned community of Shaker Heights. They welcome the iterant artist Mia Warren and her daughter Pearl. The families become intertwined and their lives become complicated and linked to drama and tragedy. It's a deeply moving story about identity, love, class and family and it will stay with me for a long time. Little Fires Everywhere is published by Little Brown and out now. Now back to Louise. Which books have surprised you? Is there anything either around then or sort of, you know, years later that you picked up and sort of enjoyed or moved by or disturbed by or something that completely confounded your expectations? I suppose the books that were a real revelation to me is that whole generation of kind of 1980s writing, particularly by black women in America. I mean, Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is one of my favorite books, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And then from that, um, you know, going backwards to discover, you know, James Baldwin or Ralph Ellison, The Invisible Man, and really to have my eyes open to a whole world that yeah, I mean, I didn't leave the East Midlands until I went to go to university and I didn't travel at all as a child. I, I had quite a sort of geographically contained upbringing. And just to discover in the 1980s as I came to maturity, the whole world history and particularly the black American experience, which was so far from what I had grown up with. Um, but also, you know, Chinua. Are a chebot, so many African writers, I and mean, one of my favorites now is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, to be taken to different countries, different ways of living, um, and to discover two things really how, how various the world is, but also at the same time how there's a common humanity that threads through us all, no matter what the differences are between us, sort of race, geography, upbringing, you know, time. I think that's the thing that has really sort of opened my eyes in terms of my own reading. And um, I know there's a wonderful theory from the literary agent, um, uh, Johnny Geller. He says that the very best books are a, a kind of bridge between the known and the unknown. So that in the very best books, you discover a world that's completely new to you and something that's new and surprising, but you also recognize something in that which is common to you and that a, a great novel can form a bridge between those two. And I really love that idea. And it's definitely what I've tried to do with my own fiction as well. It sounds yeah, like the sort of place and the sense of being a person of the world and a, a global citizen of books is something that's really important to you, whether that's, you know, in the, the vastness of the real world or, or in the imagined world. Yes, very much so. I mean, I've always thought of myself as a kind of global citizen and a very proud European as well. Uh, you know, even though, you know, I, I think it's been a great boon to, to grow up British in terms of, you know, the history of our language and our literature and all those things. Um, as soon as I was old enough, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was travel. Um, and there's nothing that pleases me more 
than you know getting you get a tiny amount of money if your novel's translated into Lithuanian <laughs> but you know it's just so exciting <laughs> to think that somebody in Lithuania or South Korea you know might be reading one of my novels um uh, I just can say I'm very proud of the amount of languages that I've been translated into and, and that's one of my great joys as a writer. I was wondering if you have a favourite foreign edition or a cover or any but because it must be so surreal seeing something that's sort of entirely familiar, it came out of your head, and yet it looks sort of, you know, almost unrecognisable. Yes, I mean, the, the Italians do me proud. The Italian editions are absolutely beautiful. Um, I love them to pieces. Um, editions, I can't remember which one it was, but there's various editions where the alphabet is not um, the Roman alphabet that we're used to. And, you know, I think the Taiwanese edition or, uh, or Hebrew edition, I mean, just an edition where the book feels transformed as well as translated. Um, I mean, those are always lovely. Uh, I mean, with Apple Tree Art, I had a couple of stilettos slapped on the covers as well. That's less pleasing. <laughs> Uh, but I try and I try and fend those off as much as possible. Because I suppose as well, we know that the nature of language is that no translation is ever literal and that there is someone out there whose job it is to sort of to make your words almost sound more like your words than they would do if it was just a very straightforward translation. A guest we had on the podcast um Jessica Bennett, who is a, a, a writer and editor at the New York Times, her partner's aunt is Elena Ferrante's um, translator, translates from Italian to English. And I often wonder about those books and, you know, which I've, I've loved them so much and how they would be different if I read Italian and understood Italian well enough to read them as they were written. Yes, very much so. Um, I mean, the most potent example I had of that was Stone Cradle, my fifth novel, when it was translated into German. Um, that's a book that has quite a lot of dialect in it. Um, and there's a lot of the characters speak in the accent of the Cambridgeshire Fens. Um, there's some Anglo-Romany, uh, there's some uh, Romany words and phrases, but there's also a kind of what you might call a turn of phrase in a language you recognise, but using a kind of Romany construction. And the German translator did say, thanks Louise, you've made my job pretty tricky here. And she for German dialects that would represent the same social standing and social structures of 19th century rural Cambridgeshire. She was sort of searching through her knowledge of German dialects for something that would that would sound to the German ear as if it came from that kind of social status. Is there anything that you're looking forward to reading? Is there anything on your pile right now that you're excited about? The pile is huge. The pile is absolutely enormous. Well, I've just found out that um, Platform 7, the most recent book, has been long-listed for the Theakston's Old Peculiar Novel of the Year. Oh, congratulations. So, That's fantastic. And there's loads of fantastic books on the long list, uh, which I will now have to go out and read, obviously hoping to find some fatal flaw in each. That means that I suspect, though, I will be roundly beaten um, because there's some amazing you know, uh, books on that list, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to discovering a lot of those. And then also... Um, there's Amanda Craig's got a new novel out in June, The Golden Rule. Uh, that sounds terrific. Michael Ardity has just published a new novel, um, The Anointed. I really want to read that. 
there's a fantastic new novelist come from Dialogue Books, published a book called Rainbow Milk, and it's Paul and Paul Mendez, I think is his uh, surname. I really hope I've got that right. Um, but that sounds really, really interesting. Um, I, I want to check that out. So, I mean, you know, there's always so many books and so little time. Do you sort of hang on to all of your books? Do you have to? Because I know what, you know, as someone who gets a lot of proofs all the time and it, you know I must never ever ever complain and it's such a blessing but it does mean that if I do not do regular clear outs the books will fall on me and I will die in the night. <laughs> yeah uh, very much so it's very similar to here I tend to kind of develop kind of stalagmites they sort of grow in up against the wall in kind of various piles and then once it reaches the point where gravity is pulling the pile over on its own I look at it and I go okay there really, really has got to be a cull here. Of course, under the current circumstances, we can't take anything to charity shops, which is a real shame. But no, there's just, I mean, there's piles of them everywhere, all around the house. Um, and every now and then you, you, you've got to have a cull, really. I'm trying to get more ruthless, but I've been very bad at it so far. I mean, other than your own, of course, are there any books that you own that would be sort of the last to go if you had to sort of, you know, Desert Island style pick just sort of just one or just five? I do like, I buy Friends first editions in hardback. Um, Jill Dawson is a big friend. Um, students of mine, Stephanie Scott, um, there's another wonderful novelist called Guinevere Glassford who was shortlisted for the Costa a couple of years ago. She's also an ex-student of mine. Um, by Anaidu, a wonderful Indian novelist, also from the same class. And I feel particularly attached to those, I think, because it was my favourite thing when I used to teach creative writing was meeting somebody before they're published, the very early days, teaching them for six months or a year, getting to know them, seeing, really kind of coming to understand their struggles, you know, both with their own particular book but also with themselves as a novelist with the idea of whether they really were a novelist whether they really could do it and then if a few years down the line they get published and you get to hold their book in your hand having seen it in the very very early gestation that's such a thrill I mean I would say that's more of a thrill than holding my own books the really. midwife and kind of a, a sort of grandparent I suppose you've been such a big part of the birthing process uh, do you share books with your daughters? Do you sort of read with your family now? No, I let them do discover their own reading list. I think it's a very bad idea if parents try and kind of control their children's reading. And also both my daughters are grown up now, so they wouldn't have it anyway. Louise, it's been such a pleasure. I've really, really loved talking to you. Thank you so much. And I've got loads of things I want to go away and read now. And good luck with it all. And good luck with the rest of lockdown, because, you know, who knows? <laughs> and, it, you know, it's terrific that, you know, people are out there still supporting reading and promoting books, really. Um, you know, I'm very grateful because the industry will struggle if the economy suffers. And although there's lots of time for reading, obviously a lot of people are returning to classics. And I think anything that promotes contemporary fiction um, and fiction from small presses as well that are going to have a really hard time. And I think, you know, it, it's great. I'm very grateful to everybody who's sort of helping keep reading alive, really, because with the festivals cancelled, obviously, these kinds of things are so much more important. Oh, gosh, so Platform 7, was that out today? Very recent. It was, hang on, it was a Thursday. Was it last Thursday or... Yeah, it was last Thursday. Thank you. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was a that was last Thursday, wasn't it? Thank you for reminding me. I think that's a really, really 
good, compelling, compulsive, immersive book for people to be reading and discovering in these times. So I think that's... um, Especially, and if you know anyone listening wants to go and buy it from an independent bookshop, then it's all good. Absolutely, yeah, that's brilliant. Hopefully, I will see you before then, but maybe I'll see you next year in Guernsey. <laughs> Wouldn't that be marvellous? Yes, I'll let, definitely. Let's plan on that. A kind of a glass of very, very cold white wine overlooking the beach. Please. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like heaven. Huge thanks to Louise for shelf-isolating with us. Platform 7 is out now, published by Faber. It's so gripping that it will keep you up all night, but you'll want to lock the doors to keep all your lights on. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for listening. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Follow us on social media at Booked. I hope you're all keeping as safe and sane and well and cheerful as possible. Please keep reading. I'll see you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com it's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always dive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.